We're looking at Hebrews chapter 10, uh, reading verses 1 through 18. Hebrews 10, beginning at verse 1, once again, listen to the reading of God's holy word. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they have not ceased to be offered. For the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will he have, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is no where, where there is remission of sins, there is no longer an offering for sin. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this His Word. O oh Lord God in heaven, we again praise you and thank you for the good truth of your Word. And as we come to this particular topic, and as we consider these passages of your of your Word, we pray that you would under, help us to understand your truth. And uh, apply it to our hearts and to our lives and be thankful uh, for what you have accomplished for us. The salvation that we enjoy in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we ask now for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well we know that Jesus is the mediator. The only mediator between God and man. And we know that Jesus uh, had to become man in order to accomplish this work of mediation. And as we considered last time, we know that as our mediator, Jesus, the Son of God, was first humiliated, enduring the effects of sin and misery in this life, so that he might uh, be able to identify with us. But then after his death and resurrection, the Heavenly Father rewarded the Son's perfect obedience by highly exalting him to the right hand of God the Father in heaven where he now reigns and rules over all things for the benefit of the church and for the glory of God. All this Jesus fulfilled in his role as mediator. But what is it 
that Jesus actually accomplished for us in his role as mediator. That is, how specifically do we, those who trust in him, how do we benefit from Christ's role as mediator? Well, one of the key and perhaps even the primary accomplishments of Jesus, the Son of God, as our mediator, was his making atonement for our sins. Atonement basically means to make amends for a wrong so that reconciliation can take place. Now, in a popular understanding, it could be understood as, as at one right? Making one or reconciling together what was previously separate. Theologically, atonement is often defined as the reconciliation between God and man. And again, we see, see this in Romans 5, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace and reconciliation with God, that is uh, atonement. Well, in this light, there are often two uh, components to atonement that become necessary in order for us to be reconciled to God. The first is what we call expiation. Expiation refers to the removal of our sins. We're born in sin, and so we have this, uh, this uh, cloud of, of uh, filthiness uh, that we're coming to this world with. Well, that sin needs to be removed in order for us to be reconciled to God. And in 1 John 3, John says, And you know that he, that is Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. And here we see, of course, the sinlessness of the mediator. That was required. He had to be a sinless man in order to take away our sins. We needed to be rescued by someone who was greater than we are. And so our sins are covered over and taken away from us through the work of the mediator. But removal of sin is only one part of atonement. There's also not just expiation, but also propitiation. Propitiation is what is referred to as the satisfaction of God's justice. And so in Hebrews 2, we read this, Therefore, in all things he had to be made, again referring to Jesus, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So again, Jesus had to be like us in order to endure the uh, wrath and curse of God, which was uh, God's justice, the satisfaction of God's justice for our sins. Now these two, expiation and propitiation, are certainly closely related because you couldn't really have one without the other. That is, God's justice requires that he pours out his holy wrath upon sin. And if our sins aren't removed, if they're not covered over, if they're not atoned for, well, then that wrath and curse is going to be poured out upon us. But if our sins are removed, well, they still must be judged and done away with because God's justice and his holy wrath must be satisfied. And so in the atonement, instead of we ourselves enduring God's wrath and curse... The one who removed our sins from us actually endured the just wrath on our behalf and our place. 
And this makes the work of the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, really all the more amazing and humbling for us, is that not only did he take away our sins, but he endured the satisfaction of God's justice because of our sins. He paid the penalty that we deserved. Christ was truly the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And by doing so, he suffered that just and holy wrath and curse of God because of those sins. Even though he knew he himself knew no sin, he became sin for us and was punished. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that truly, that sums up the atonement right there. That Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, so that our sins could be taken away. Our sins were placed upon him. And then he also then endured the wrath and curse that those sins deserved. Well, and truly, this atonement was necessary. Again, we remember that the penalty for sin was death. And this was what God had warned Adam about before the fall, that if he ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that he would surely die. And the penalty of disobeying God was death. Now, in Scripture, death is often accomplished through the shedding of blood. And the shedding of blood, whenever you read that in Scripture, it means death. It doesn't mean just wounding somebody, but it means that they were actually put to death. And so after the fall, God instituted the whole sacrificial system in order to teach mankind that blood must be shed in order for sin to be removed. Right? This, the judgment for sin was death. But God graciously spared Adam and Eve from the immediate application of that justice. And instead he was going to be satisfied by a sacrifice that they could offer up. And so God showed Adam and Eve this very thing. When he uh, killed an animal to make a covering for their shameful nakedness. A, a beautiful picture of, the co- of, of God uh, covering our sin and what Jesus would ultimately accomplish through the atonement. Covering over our sin. And of course it meant that the animal had to die. Well until then... God, until the time of Christ, God had instructed man uh, to use sheep and goats to symbolize this atonement, to make satisfaction, to take away our sins. Now, on the eve of the Exodus, before God uh, struck Egypt with the last plague, he instituted the Passover. And with the Passover, a lamb was to be slain, and the blood of that lamb was smeared on the door post so that the angel of the Lord would pass over those who were covered by the blood. Again, this is another picture of atonement. Well, then, of course, later, as we read in Leviticus, God would institute the Day of Atonement. And on that day, there would be two goats. There would be one who would be... uh, 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 The lots were cast, and one was uh, appointed to be for the Lord, and that was the one that was uh, appointed to be the sacrifice for the sins of the people. And its blood was uh, would, was to be taken and, into the most holy place and sprinkled on the mercy seat to show that the sins of the people, to, or to, I mean, to show that atonement was truly being made to God. Well, then the other goat uh, was left alive, and it would be kept 
and so that the high priest was then to lay his hands on the head of that goat, and as he did so, he would confess the sins of the people. And again, Leviticus sixteen twenty one, and he shall send him away by the hand of a fit man in the into the wilderness, and the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. And so what's called the scapegoat, that's how we get that word, the scapegoat, was the, a picture of symbolizing the taking away of our sins to go out into the wilderness, right? The sacrifice of the first goat was the uh, propitiation. That was the uh, satisfaction of God's justice because blood had to be shed. But then with the scapegoat, we have the expiation. We have the sins being taken away Uh, symbolically taken away by this goat. But remember in Hebrews 10, verse 4, that it's actually, the right to Hebrews said it actually wasn't possible, though, that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It was something that God allowed, but ultimately the blood of those animals did nothing to take away their sins. And so that's why they had to repeat them uh, year to year. Well, these, of course, sacrifices ultimately were pointing towards something better that would come. And that something better would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, John was now identifying Jesus as the Passover Lamb and as the sacrificial scapegoat who would take away our sins even as far as the east is from the west. And so again, this is what is meant by the atonement. But there was something else accomplished by Christ's mediation related to the atonement. And we find this in the Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 8, paragraph 5. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father, there's the propitiation, and purchased... Not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. So not only is there reconciliation achieved between God and man, but there's also this inheritance that now is uh, secured and guaranteed. And of course, this was the purpose which Jesus gave to the apostles, uh, to the apostle Paul, uh, when he called him to send him out to preach. Uh, In Acts 26, Paul recounts the Lord Jesus saying to him, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn from them, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so our inheritance is being in the glorious presence of God where there is fullness of joy forever. And that was secured for us through this mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus. But in order for us to receive that inheritance, again, there must first be the death of the one who made the promise to give that inheritance. And we looked at this before uh, a couple weeks ago when we were talking, or maybe months ago now, when we were talking about um, God's covenant Hebrews 9, and for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, 
that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. And so Jesus, as our mediator, died on the cross that we might receive the inheritance that was then promised to us. Well, at this point, we need to uh, take a look at the purpose and the design of this atonement that Jesus achieved. And there's certainly much disagreement among Christians as to what this purpose and design was. And it often the disagreement often comes to a head when the question is asked, for whom did Jesus die? Who were the beneficiaries of his atonement? Well, there are several views. The first is universalism. This view of the atonement sees that the atonement of Jesus is applied to all mankind without exception, so that in reality all mankind is actually and truly saved. Now this is the view of the modern liberal Christianity. They would use as support such passages that speak of Christ dying for all men or dying for the sins of the whole world. Of course, along with the emphasis on God's attribute of love. And so they might argue a God of love would not allow anyone to suffer and die in eternal hell. Therefore, God must save everyone. And Jesus then died for everyone and has actually saved everyone. And so Christ's victory was a victory for everyone, regardless of their religion, their faith, or even their lifestyle. But we know that this isn't the case. In fact, it's impossible. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Buddhist isn't going to come to God the Father unless they go through Jesus Christ. Or the Muslim is going to come to God the Father through the prophet Muhammad, but only through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only way to the Father. And we must believe in him and love him. And of course, if we love him, we're going to evidence that by keeping his commandments. And we know that not all people are driven to glorify God in their lives. And of course, that the commandment of Christ are far from from them even to opposite of how they live. The testimony rejects universalism when it says that we reject the teaching that all men already are in Christ and have been redeemed by him, whether they realize it or not. And so universalism is to be rejected. A second view is much more popular in broader evangelical in the broader evangelical church, and we might call it unlimited atonement. Those who teach this view also stress that Jesus died for all mankind without exception, but they will part ways with the universalist in that they actually acknowledge that not all men are saved. And the determining factor is the unfettered free will choice of mankind. They'll say God casts a vote for you and Satan casts a vote against you, so you need to cast the deciding vote. 
Well, to support this, they will also use the verses that speak of Jesus dying for the sins of the world. For example, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And here they stress the fact that God loves everyone and desires all to be saved. But unfortunately, God apparently doesn't get what he wants. Imagine that foolishness. This view then takes away God's sovereignty and places it in the hands of mankind. It implies that it's impossible to overrule the will, or it implies that it it is possible to overrule, overrule the will, the plan, and the purpose of God. But we know that the scriptures clearly teach otherwise. In Job 42, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. The purpose and plan of God cannot be thwarted. The sovereignty of God means that if God desires to save someone, then they will be saved. Now, it's true they may resist for a time, but they will come to him if that's God's plan and purpose. God will draw that person to himself so that they will eventually come willingly and joyfully. But it is God who draws him and enables him as unregenerate sinners they certainly wouldn't come to God on their own. So the unlimited view then has the effect of making the atonement of Christ null and void and not effective for those for whom it was meant for. Indeed, for many people, Christ simply died in vain. And if we think about a a huge gap, uh, an illustration of a huge gap uh, between two sides or two Uh, maybe a big uh, ocean or just a a chasm that can't be crossed. And so the unlimited view makes a bridge from one side and starts moving, making that bridge and building it to reach the other side. But the problem is it only goes part way. It doesn't reach to the other side. Well, a bridge that only goes halfway isn't very effective at all. And so it's then up to the man on the other side. So if God has built his side of the bridge, well, he's got to wait for man to build his side of the bridge. But such ability of mankind, we know, isn't found in Scripture. And man will not only not build the bridge, but he will also seek to destroy what God has already built. That's the nature of mankind. And that is... The foolishness of this unlimited view of the atonement. Well, the uh, testimony addresses this view and sets forth uh, the biblical view in these words. Christ did not lay down his life to atone for the sins of all mankind, nor for an indefinite number of sinners. His sacrifice was indeed sufficient to save the whole world had it been designed to do so. But in the purpose of God and the undertaking of Christ, it was determined that he should make atonement for those who were elected in him to everlasting life. These only he represented, and these only shall be saved through his redemption. This truth is commonly called limited atonement or particular redemption. Limited atonement teaches that God's design for the atonement of Jesus was such that it was sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world, but it was only efficient or effective by God's design 
to cover the sins of those who truly believe and those who have been called and were purposed by God. And so in this view, the bridge uh, crossing that huge gap is much narrower. It's not as wide as as the the bridge of the unlimited view. It's much narrower, but it's a bridge that actually goes all the way across, which God has built. And that bridge, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so atonement is actually secured. It's not just made possible. And John, Jesus says in John 6, All that the Father gives me will, call, will come to me, <clears throat> and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. We also see this view in passages like Mark 10, where Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, this verse poses a problem for those who assert other views because the word all is not used, but the word many. Thus, it appears to set up a contradiction because there's other passages that might well use the word all. But if we understand these all passages as meaning not each and every person without distinction, but as limited by the particular context that we find them in, well, then there's really no contradiction whatsoever. God's design for the atonement was not for all without distinction, but for all whom he had chosen, for all whom he had purposed. Not one of them shall perish. It's also important to note that the unlimited view of the atonement actually does uh, place a limit on the atonement, right? So people, they'll, they'll reject the limited atonement, but they themselves are actually putting a limit on the atonement. And in this view, it's man limiting the atonement by making or not making a particular choice. And so both uh, that view and the reform view limit the atonement. But the key difference is, who is the one limiting it? Is it God by his perfect design? Or is it by man's most powerful choice that even overrules the purpose of God? One final aspect of the atonement that we want to consider is that the atonement was fully and completely made for God's elect, for us, for those who call upon his name in truth. And we have the great privilege of, of course, being able to look back on the historical fact of this event, of Christ's death and his resurrection, that it's finished once for all, sacrifice for our sins has indeed been secured and accomplished for us. But the benefits of Christ's mediation and his atonement don't only apply to us in A.D., Anno Domini, but it also applies to the Old Testament saints in B.C., before Christ. And it was also secured for these Old Testament saints and those who looked forward through the types and shadows of the Old Testament sacrificial system toward this once-for-all sacrifice of sins. You see, they understood that the blood of bulls and goats could not effectively atone for their sins. But because they offered these sacrifices in faith, that atonement made by Christ, once it happened in real time, was then made effective for them as well. And then at that time, their sins were truly washed away, and the satisfaction of God's justice was truly made for them as well. 
And so truly we can praise God for his marvelous grace that he has accomplished for us and for them such a great salvation. And Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man, atoned for our sins, removing them from us as far as the east is from from the west, but then also enduring God's wrath and curse for them on our behalf. And he did all this so that we can be now reconciled to God and so that we can have the sure and certain hope of our eternal inheritance in his glorious presence forever and ever. Let's pray. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to you for this uh, reminder about the glory of the atonement and the mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us on on the cross, that not only are our sins taken away, But the punishment has been satisfied so that truly our debt is clear because of what Jesus accomplished for us in our behalf. And it truly is a wonder to us. Again, we are reminded of this truth all the time. And yet, how often we we don't truly appreciate the depths of your love and your grace and your mercy toward us. That he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a glorious truth. And we praise you and thank you for this atonement. This once for all perfect sacrifice for our sins. And even as we uh, continue to deal with our sin nature and the remnant of the sin nature that remains in us. That we can always come before you confessing our sins clinging to the promise, clinging to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Truly that our sins will be forgiven and that they'll be washed and cleansed away and taken far, far from us. Father, again, we praise you and thank you for these truths. We thank you again for the gift of the Lord's Day and this day that has been such a blessing to us to be able to gather together, to rest from our usual labors, to Uh, gather with your people to sing your praise and to worship your name, to fellowship and to study the truth of your word. Father, we just pray that you would truly strengthen us, even as we look to the week that lies ahead, that we would be equipped to be faithful servants for your glory. May we truly be those faithful witnesses, and may we shine bright, not because of anything we've done, but but because of what Jesus has done in us and through us. And so we just pray, Father, that you would truly glorify yourself in us and through us, that we might truly seek to serve you in all that we do. We pray all these things in the name of Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.